All right, gather around the fire, everybody. Got a little holiday story for you. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the Senate, the halls rang with grumbles of Lieberman, damn it. The compromise talks had proceeded with care, in hopes that the votes to reach cloture would be there. Some changes were made to help things move ahead. The once public option, now private instead. Still more who fell into the uninsured gap might slip in neath a raise in the Medicaid cap. And to further address all the uninsured fears, the Medicare age would be lowered 10 years. Staunch opponents, of course, were left out in the cold, but the folks in the room seemed to think it would hold. Nelson and Lincoln and Landrew and Joe. And of course, in their thoughts, was Olympia Snow. A press conference was held. A deal had been found. The mad dash was done. Stick a fork in this round. Max Baucus went home, took his girlfriend to bed, as bill-signing dreams danced in Harry Reid's head. Yet what within days did perchance reappear but a miniature man with a confident sneer? Well, I'm not so sure, came that voice from below, and we knew without looking it must be St. Joe. He was dressed in a suit with that flattened blonde hair and a halo that only true mavericks can wear. His eyes, how they twinkled, his lips, how they glistened, his head seemed to swell just a bit as we listened. His expression so smug, his lips thin but rosy. From afar came a scream, just like Nancy Pelosi. Dick Durbin turned pale. Tom Harkin looked weak. Al Franken made strange farting sounds with his cheek. Now, colleagues, now, gentlemen, ladies, look here. It's far too expensive to pay for, I fear. Now, I'm all for reform. Joe's lips turned to a frown. But this time, I really must put my foot down. The public plan's gone, and that's great, but I think there's this Medicare thing now, he said with a wink. It's about fiscal prudence and honest debate, uh, not those insurers home-based in my state. Then he quite characteristically turned with a jerk, strode right neath the legs of a stunned Senate clerk, and laying a finger aside of his nose, whistled for John McCain, and like that, there he goes. But we heard him exclaim, within shot of our ear, and good luck with Ben Nelson. I'll see you next year. Ah, uh, nothing like a fake fire and a legislative deadline to put everyone in the Christmas spirit. I'm Jeff Horwich. This is In the Loop. Merry whatever, everybody. Um, you know, such is life for us as a podcast. Things may well be resolved in D.C. by the time you hear this. But at the moment, the power of a tiny few continues to determine what, if any, kind of mangled, half-baked version of health insurance reform will be gifted to the American people this holiday season. Uh, this episode today turned out to be mostly holiday-related kind of stuff. Just worked out like that. So quick word of advice. If you're just uh, testing it out, just listening into the first bit here, thinking maybe of putting it on hold till after the holiday, don't do that. Load it up on your pod device and take it with you uh, wherever you're going, over the river and through the woods. Uh, maybe even introduce Grandma to an earbud and, and play it for her. Sandin's coming by a little later uh, with some cool stuff. And I've, I've got, a little, got a little surprise for him here. And uh, we've got a bunch of great guests and listener gift-giving advice. It's going to be fun. But before we get on to the festivities, let's jump from health reform to that other critically important policy issue where a huge amount of effort often seems to amount to a big old WTF. David Gillette is on the phone with me from Copenhagen. 
And we actually held the podcast back a bit this week. Uh, it is getting late on Friday now, uh, so that things could wrap up there before we talked with him. Uh, David, what, uh, what time is it there right now? We are just a few minutes away from 11 p.m. Copenhagen time. <laughs> Which means, I guess you and I are both in for later nights than usual, but yours uh, sucks a lot more than mine does. Yeah, I think so. Um, I've been on a plane in about five hours, too, so it's going to be a long one for sure. Well, David is no ordinary person just talking to me on the phone from a climate conference. Uh, he's been there for two weeks, and he's been drawing cartoons every day about what's been going down for Twin Cities Public Television and MinPost. I've been putting the YouTube versions up on uh, our Facebook page. We have just a few minutes here because at this moment in time, the president uh, is about the president of the United States is about to step out and say something. Uh, what do we know right now about what he's going to say? Well, what we know is that here in Copenhagen, we've now seen the creation of what's known as the Copenhagen Accord. And this is an agreement between all 192 countries that are represented in these negotiations. Mm-hmm. And these 192 countries have now signed on what's being described in the press as a weak watered-down political statement of a climate deal here in Copenhagen. And the president is going to step out in just a minute and put his take on the proceedings. But they did put a name on it. Or they had to come away with something that they could call an accord or a deal or a, a summit-ending document, right? Yeah, and I can, I can tell you, if you actually want a taste of how this place works, the simple name of Copenhagen Accord was subject of much debate, just as the Kyoto Protocol title was subject of debate back in the 90s. So everything that's done here, as I've experienced in the last two weeks, goes through rigorous discussion and analysis. People have uh, all the details probably by the time they hear this, but I'm sure you're actually physically kind of tired at the moment after doing this for two weeks. You have no idea. Spiritually, mentally, I don't know. Was this thing uh, disillusioning for you? No, it was not disillusioning, and and I hope that's that's not completely how my voice is sounding after these many sleepless nights. <laughs> well, no, it's what the, but, ev- it's what the events suggest uh, in a way. But uh, yeah, tell me more. You know, if you focus just on the results, then yes, the results were definitely, I think, not where the expectations of the conference were and not where the science says we need to be on this topic. But at the same time, I'm standing here in the Bella Center, which is this um, incredibly modern event facility in Copenhagen. And I am surrounded by people from all over the globe, speaking all sorts of different languages. And the entire week I have been struck by the fact that here we are facing a serious challenge on a global level, and the approach to dealing with it, whether we get the results that we want or not, is coming together and talking. We're not shooting each other over it. We're not building walls over it. We are here discussing. And we may see these as legislative failures or failures of political will, but the fact that a conversation is taking place when faced with a problem is a heartening thing, and that's something I've definitely experienced this last week and will take away from it. But do you have a sense that that conversation was really driving toward anything? I mean, there were like a whole bunch of different conversations going on. China's having one conversation, the U.S. is having another, the developing uh, countries in Africa are having a totally different one, and it's really unclear uh, that we've got anything after all that. Yeah, that's true. And I'll tell you, one of the dynamics that I think leads to that endpoint is that groups like this within the UN, they have to govern by consensus, meaning that every decision that's made has to be accepted unanimously by all the member parties involved. And just an interesting story, at the very start of this conference two weeks ago now, the Alliance of Small Island States, which are these island groups you've heard, like the Maldives, that are essentially sinking Mm -hmm. into the ocean as sea level rises, They made a point fairly early in the conference to say, listen, this is too urgent. We can no longer stoop to, as they described it, the lowest common denominator by governing by consensus. We have to move to a three-fourths majority on these decisions. 
the reason that doesn't work at the UN when you have a, a loosely knit association of sovereign countries is that if they don't agree, they don't have to be part of this. Is there any one thing, uh, maybe one person, is it Al Gore who can shock the world out of its stasis here when it comes to this issue? I mean, what, what do you imagine after watching two weeks of this stuff is going to actually pull everybody as swiftly as might need to happen toward an end game? You know, that's a great question. And something I wrote about in MinPost earlier in the week was when you ask the question, when you face global problems like this, where do global solutions really come from? And the person that I've heard this week give the best answer was Connie Hedegaard, who was the elected president. She's a politician from here in Denmark, and she's elected president of the conference. And as she put it in an interview, in order to enact change, you have to make the political price for not being a part of it so high that nobody can afford to pay it. What that really is saying in my mind is that political will is coming from the people who give these leaders power. And so ultimately, I don't think it's a matter of an Al Gore or somebody else. It's ultimately the groundswell of pressure that makes action absolutely politically necessary. Is everybody there very careful to appear as if they're being environmentally conscious at every moment of the day? Like nobody's drinking from styrofoam cups, right? Within the center itself, I can't say I've seen that. I mean, I grabbed a frantic dinner a few minutes ago, and I ate a muffin that was wrapped in plastic and a sandwich that came in even more plastic and a smoothie that was in a plastic bottle. <laughs> but I can tell you the Bella Center, where we're meeting, is making a strong effort to be green. There's a huge Vestas wind turbine spinning right outside the front door, and a lot of the toilets are low-flow toilets. A lot of the sinks are low-flow sinks. And so the setting is self-aware of the issue, but, I mean, the obvious hypocrisy that always comes up when you hold these meetings is that people flew from all over the world to get here. That puts by far the most carbon in the air. Hypocrisy is not hard to point out. Hmm. Well, you've got a press conference to get to, uh, and you've got a hypocritical airplane flight to uh, to get on to come back to the States here. So say hi to the president for me. Thanks, David. Yes, it'll be good to be home. Hello to Minnesota. David Gillette, uh, his website is minnetonkacomics.com. He's been uh, doing his cartoons from COP15 for MinPost and TBT. All right. Well, we're going to go kind of Christmassy on you for the rest of the episode here. I hope you're feeling festive. I am. I'm getting there anyway, and I'm going to give it a little boost by, quite literally, I am putting on my Santa cap. I will rustle it a little bit extra here so you are convinced of that fact. Uh, We're going to start with some of your responses to a question I put on Facebook a little while ago, asking whether anybody had creative or unique approaches to gift-giving uh, this year that they wanted to share with us. And we heard a lot of interesting things. Uh, some people are doing only used gifts. Some people are uh, doing kind of like a white elephant thing uh, in their families. Some people, of course, uh, like mine would be an example of this, are kind of drawing names or setting monetary limits to try and keep a cap on things given the way things are at the moment. But here are two specific ones to help launch us into the rest of the show. The first of these is Jessica, and she lives in the northern part of Minnesota. In fact, uh, I interviewed Jessica at some length uh, in the latter part of one of our previous shows, and she was back in touch with us on this question. She has four kids, all girls, if I recall, and here's what she's planning. My name is Jessica Sunheim, and I'm from Fergus Falls. This year, my family is giving experiences instead of things for presents. This is the first year we've tried this. The first thought that we had, and we have the coolest center for the arts here in town, and they bring in all this amazing talent. This um, African drumming group came up from the cities, and they did this amazing show. And then afterward, they talked about workshops that they were going to be doing. And so I thought, oh, that would be really cool because the kids got really excited about that. The other one, which we have done in the past, we reserved 
a camper cabin. We have a state park that's about 40 miles away. Wonderful little camper cabins, and they're heated, and they have uh, electricity. We also got one book that had some artsy things in it that we could do together. I, it's kind of an experiment because it's the first time we've done this. And I hope they don't think this is the worst Christmas ever, <laughs> you know. But I think by the time that we get to do everything, they're going to appreciate it. I am Veronica Jacobson. I live in Richfield, Minnesota. And this year, uh, for better or for worse, I am boycotting any wish lists. When the normal requests from family members for lists came in. I just couldn't do it. I, no lists, no. They were really taken aback. My husband isn't quite getting it. My daughter's four, you know, and I don't want her to expect things. I think if you know anything about someone, you can usually think of something great that they would really love. And yes, sometimes you get somebody something and they hate it. We'll see. We'll see how Christmas goes. Hopefully it'll catch on. Okay, that was No Lists Veronica, preceded by Jessica, who this year is giving her family the experience of not actually receiving any stuff. The insights of Mary, Kristen, and Elizabeth still to come later in the show. Uh, men, as I guess you can tell, don't like to answer this question, apparently, or don't have anything interesting to say on the topic, because we heard from very few of them. But... Here now is a man willing to talk with us about gift-giving. It's time for an academic assault on that holiday tradition with economist Joel Waldfogel. Joel, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. Joel's a professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and his book, just out this fall, is called Scroogeonomics. And I believe at some point you refer to Christmas as an orgy of value destruction and misallocated resources. Guilty. How charming. And explain to me what you mean. I guess, what is what is the point of the book that you're trying to make? Yeah, sure, sure. And just to be clear, it's not Christmas, but it's the process of gift giving. So the point of the book is really simple. You know, normally when we spend money on ourselves, we'll only buy something if it's worth at least the price. So normally, spending provides a reasonable measure of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Gift giving, though, is really different. If I set out to spend, say, $50 on you, I could spend $50 and buy something that's worth nothing to you. In other words, I could destroy a lot of value. I've done a lot of surveys of gift recipients over the years, and I've learned that they value the stuff they receive as gifts about 20% less per dollar spent than the stuff they buy for themselves. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of the magnitude of this mismatch. We're spending a lot, but we're not producing nearly enough satisfaction. So we'd all be better off if what? We were just going out and buying things for ourselves or if we told people exactly what we wanted? Well, so here's where it gets tough. People do seem to enjoy giving gifts. So that means the solution can't just be don't give gifts, because then we miss out on that joy of giving. If givers knew exactly what recipients wanted, then the worst they would do is sort of duplicate what the recipients would have done with cash, and that would be at least somewhat efficient. Problem is, a lot of folks find explicit requests and gift lists a little too overt and vulgar. So that's not a perfect solution for everyone. The other thing, uh, although it's rare, it is occasionally the case that a gift giver does something, you know, I would call transcendent. Sometimes they actually find something that you would not have chosen for yourself because you didn't know about it. But if you had known about it, it's even better than what you would have done. So wish lists are an efficient solution for people who are comfortable with them but they're not perfect in a variety of ways. One of the things you recommend is for people to uh, much more seriously consider gift cards as a way of giving the holiday season, which I have to admit, I hate that idea. Gift cards feel so impersonal. 
so I have mixed feelings about them myself, but it depends what you're comparing them to. Certainly, we do quite well choosing actual gifts for people we see frequently. So I say go ahead and keep giving the way we have for the people we know well, our significant others, especially friends, siblings. Uh, parents even do quite well for their own children. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole lot of other giving where there's an obligation to give a gift, but you really don't have much of a connection or much, much knowledge about what the person wants. And there, it's really a choice between a shot in the dark that's probably going to be uh, destroying value and a gift card that, well, frankly, is something the recipient in that context would prefer to have rather than something that's useless to them. You had some interesting ideas about melding gift giving and charity. Yeah. So I have a couple of ideas. I really, you know, you know, people do call me a Scrooge, but I'm really like a morning after Scrooge. Well, you named your book that too. (laughs) I know, I know, no, it's fair. Uh, It's a fair game. Uh, One thing is take those gift cards. Uh, By some accounts, they're $80 billion a year. We're told that 10% of that value never gets redeemed. That means it in most states ends up eventually in the hands of the retailers. So I would love to see a new kind of gift card where automatically, say after 24 months, the unspent balances go straight to charity. That way, the giver knows that either his recipient or some some sort of worthy cause is getting the money. Another idea is a new development called charity gift cards, and they allow a giver to give the recipient a card, and that card allows the recipient to go to a website and look at a long list of charities and choose which one gets the money. Gifts to charity are actually one of the clear luxuries in the spending data. So if I let you give to charity, I'm letting you experience a luxury. No value gets destroyed, and you know something good comes of all this. I think that would be just a really nice thing. Do you have any ideas, any imaginative thoughts for, for how we make up for the ritual, though, of putting something in a box and giving it to somebody and having them be surprised? If we don't want to lose all our economic value, but we want to somehow keep this you know, magical, hey, what's in there thing. Hmm, I don't know. How about gift cards with a random amount on them? You know, lottery gift cards. <laughs> but uh, Sounds horrible. Yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> I mean... Kind of like those, you know, the giveaways. They're like, here's a gift card for you. It could have five bucks or, you know, there's a one in a thousand chance it has $200 on it. And yeah, sure right. enough, it's got five bucks and isn't that yeah. exciting? I mean, seriously, though, many people find themselves buying multiple gifts for the same recipient. You know, perhaps one of them can be a surprise. But at the same time, just want folks to be aware that when they're shooting in the dark, they're really risking destroying lots of value. Since you have come to understand and believe the true value-destroying lump-of-coal way of looking at the holidays here. How are you handling this in your own life, with your own family? Well, because I I talk and listen to my uh, wife and children all year long, at least that's my view of it, I know what they want and uh, have good ideas, and so we go ahead and we do give gifts inside our family. I will say, though, people have become more reluctant to give me gifts over the years. I would think so, because you understand just how wrong they've got it. Do you let them know? No, I don't. And frankly, nobody does. And I think that's a good thing. But I also think that's what perpetuates the bad choices. Well, Joel, you managed to sound uh, cheerful enough through this whole thing that I think you didn't wind wind up bringing us down, even though the facts are a little bit uh, dismal, as usual, with economics. Uh, Very good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Joel Waldfogel there. The book is called Scroogeonomics, available wherever fine books are sold. And uh, I'm sure if you wanted to give it as a gift, Joel would be okay with that. I told Sandon the other day, I think I'm going to write a book uh, called Economics Bookonomics. What do you think? Well, let's move ahead with a couple more of your, that is you, our listeners, your gift-giving schemes. Up first is Mary, and here's what she's planning this year. My name is Mary McLeod. I live in St. Paul. My daughter called me. She lives in Oregon. She called and said, can we do something other than just buying presents for each other this year? 
neither of us knows exactly what to buy for the other, and, and we don't need anything. So I, I said, sure, and she has a big music collection. I thought I'd love to have some of her music if she would share it with me. And in return, I offered to do some mending and altering of her clothes. That actually morphed into Mom making her a skirt, but I'm glad to do that for her. We're also going to buy, as a family, buy some bus tokens and a small denomination gift certificates for homeless people. So that's our arrangement for this year. All right, Mary's making a skirt. Here's another, um, maybe more of a cautionary tale along those lines. This one will make Joel Waldfogel proud. I'm Kristen O'Brien, and I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. End of November, my husband and I went to Lanesboro, Minnesota for our anniversary, and we went to this store where they had very nice soaps and creams and everything. They had these pine soap dishes, and I showed them to my husband. I said, you can make these. Why don't we use all that excess scrap wood we have laying around the house in the garage and make some soap dishes? And so he said, okay. So we got home. He goes out, and he starts doing his thing, and and uh, he comes back after a couple hours, and he says, you know, I think I need a plunger out of it. That would really make these perfect. It's $400, but I can get it for 200 on Craigslist. And I'm like, okay, for soap dishes. Um, well, Merry Christmas to you then, too. And so he went and got the plunger outer, and the dishes came out quite lovely. But given that the fact that the wood that we're using is very expensive on a per-foot basis, and then the plunger outer costs what it was, I'm sure that these soap dishes are probably about $50 each. You know, so much for our attempts to uh, save scads of money and get rid of scrap wood. You know, we all have these great intentions, and then the reality of it is often a little more complicated than the, uh, than the original thought process. Do you need a soap dish, by the way? <laughs> so, yeah, next year I think maybe it'll be, um, I don't know, maybe I'll just buy candles or something and call it a day. <laughs> You know, I think I'm good on the soap dishes, but thanks, Kristen. Uh, that little bit of laughter you heard there on our end, that was Anna Wegel, our beloved and delightful Anna, who's uh, helping us track down these folks. Let's dig into yet more aspects of the season here. I've got the author of another new book. This one's called The Psychology of Santa. This is Carol Slaughterback. She's in the studio in Pennsylvania. Carol, welcome to In the Loop. Thank you very much for having me. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Scranton, and uh, your book goes through all kinds of different ways that a psychologist might look at Santa and the holidays. Uh, I want to ask you about gift-giving a little bit first, because we just talked with the author of another new book called Scroogeonomics, who suggests (laughs) that gift-giving in many ways is a highly inefficient thing to do and that perhaps we should quit doing it, except for maybe people that we know exceedingly well. I'm wondering about your thoughts as a psychologist on gift giving during the holidays when you hear something like that what do you think <laughs> uh, sounds like you were talking to a psychoanalyst before um the uh, the psychoanalytic perspective those who come from a, a freudian perspective view gift giving very negatively unless it's something that's homemade huh. and uh, they say that homemade gifts are the ones that truly reflect uh, love and care for the person and that buying things you're sort of making up for lacks in your relationship a, a lack of contact or a lack of love or, or something along those lines oh so there's a there's a school of thought in psychology that also like this economist uh, has an issue with with gift giving the traditional Freudian psychoanalytic type folks definitely huh. I think would yes but they have issues with everything about Christmas let me tell you eating Christmas cookies is a form of cannibalism I mean what? <laughs> not just gingerbread men but well, the, uh, the ones in, of Santa or gingerbread men that's that's actually a socially accepted form of cannibalism according to them all right they believe that the the whole Christmas thing of Santa coming down the chimney is just recreating a, a oh, birth no that's well <laughs> yeah. that's not as bad as I <laughs> momentarily think 
thought. <laughs> okay. Uh, they were no, I'm not it. going there. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, the, the Freudians, I don't know how big a camp that is in psychology today, but uh, would there be a more positive take from your field on the rampant gift giving that we all, well, many of us feel a real urge to do this time of year? Well, there was one study that looked at people's happiness and satisfaction with the Christmas holiday. They found that those people for whom the materialistic aspects were most prominent actually experienced the least satisfaction with the Christmas holiday. Okay. Uh, the people who experienced the most satisfaction were the ones who were more involved with their families, more involved with religious activities. So psychologists and economists may be lining up to some extent on this one, whether you're Freudian or not. Could, um, could perhaps be. Well, let's get to more of what's what's in your book. And one thing that you looked into that's gotten probably the most attention of anything from what I can read is your examination of a big sample of kids' letters to Santa from, yes. what, 1998 to 2003. So you had 9-11 right in right. the middle there. Yes. Do kids generally get down to business in these letters or do they prefer <laughs> to uh, chit-chat? <laughs> Quite a variety. Some are very much, they look like business memos. To Santa from Megan, here's my list. Boom, there it is. <laughs> Not, An economist would else. love that one. Very efficient. <laughs> yes, yeah. very efficient. Um, and others are just chatty. How are you? How's Mrs. Claus? How are the elves? How's the snow miser? Tell him I said hi. And, mm-hmm. and others are sort of in between. Any really striking questions you recall that kids had for for Santa that might not have occurred to you? Were you writing that letter? Oh, I didn't realize how many kids wanted to be elves. Hmm. (laughs) And several of them wanted Santa to send elves to them. Uh, They wanted to keep an elf, and they didn't know if they'd be allowed to, but they'd really, really like to. Uh, They'd take good care of them. Uh Um, In lieu of a dog or cat, right? (laughs) In lieu of a dog or cat, yes. (laughs) How polite are our children, uh, as far as you can glean from at least this sample from in and around Scranton, Pennsylvania? Really, the, uh, the, the amount of politeness in terms of saying please and thank you was very low. The ones who used the most pleases were the ones who wanted live animals for Christmas. So one kid wanted a golden retriever puppy. He used 16 pleases oh. in his letter. Well, they practice uh, the that next... all year round, right? Please, 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 please. <laughs> yeah. right. Mommy. Right. The next most frequent one was for a gal who wanted a horse. She said she'd keep it in the kitchen. She used mm. six or eight yeah, pleases. Big, big pleases for that uh, one. Yeah. yeah, big ones. <laughs> but on the whole, kids were not very polite, huh? No, they weren't. It puzzled me for a while until one of the studies I came across suggested that people who expect their wishes to be fulfilled typically won't use please or thank you or, or, or be that polite. I mean, think about your boss. When your boss tells you to do something, does he say he or she say please or thank you? Uh, uh, no, most likely no, no just comment. says go, do, and <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Well, we were talking last week with a, a panel of Santas. We had three of them uh-huh. with us, and all of them had different ways of sort of scaling back expectations. Uh, so I wonder if maybe if, if people make sure to sit their kids in the lap of a Santa before the holiday who can say, well, you might not get everything, you know, then maybe we could have more polite children. <laughs> Perhaps so. And this is something that I, my eight-year-old believes very much so in Santa and the whole Christmas. Uh-huh. He just vibrates with joy <laughs> this season, <laughs> uh, literally. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we I try to talk to him and say, you know, Santa has a lot of kids to get things for, so just ask for a few things. And, you know, he's doing, going through all the trouble to bring things to you, so you make certain you're polite to Santa. Oh, very good. So, so he, he he gets a talk. So your son is eight years old, and he still believes, yes. believes strongly. You did a whole chapter <laughs> in your book about belief in Santa. Uh, how yes. long How long do you want him to believe? For as long as he wants. Having a belief in Santa is not necessarily a bad thing. Some people are really up in arms and say you should not be lying to your children. And, you know, belief in fantasy figures is 
it's something that all kids do. I, it's it's no worse than Elmo and Sesame Street and, and all that kind of thing, I think. And uh, belief in, in fantasy helps engender more fantasy, helps with cognitive development. Um, and you can also, you, you can use this as a teaching tool for the child. So I don't, I don't see that that's a problem. You get into some other psychological trends around the holidays, one of which I'm sure would be depression, right? There's this conventional right. wisdom that people get depressed around the holidays, or some people do anyway, and suicides right, they, go up and all that stuff. What did you find? Right. People will talk about the holiday blues, that this is something that's absolutely rampant and that there's a lot of depression and a lot of suicides at this time. And the epidemiological studies show actually that suicides go down around Christmas and New Year's. And you'll see more suicides in July and August than you do in around this time of the holidays. Is that because for most of us, you know, Christmas actually does make the season bright and we feel married? It's a time of hope. It's a time of hope. You know, you think, okay, maybe this year things will be different. And so, mm. you know, by the time July and August roll around, if things aren't different, then, you know, back to the Depression. So so this might require a bit of speculation because it's uh, relatively recent, I guess. But, but the, you know, mega recession that we're arguably emerging from now, uh, what do you think? Good for Santa, bad for Santa? I think possibly good in terms of you know, making the kids think about their situation and what they really want and what's most important to them. Hmm, and perhaps at least leading to some more polite letters to Santa because maybe you so, might maybe not so. get every little piece of electronic <laughs> gear that you want. Right. Well, Carol, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much for bringing us inside uh, the brain <laughs> of Santa somehow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Carol Slaughterback in Scranton, Pennsylvania, from the University of Scranton, wrote The Psychology of Santa, which is extremely expensive for some reason on Amazon. She tells us it's not her fault. Something about textbook pricing. I think it's some kind of psychological trick, actually. Uh, and she also tells us that, that despite what you have seen in the opening titles of The Office, Scranton is really quite beautiful this time of year. Okay, one more listener story now about uh, your holiday gift-giving plans. This one's from Elizabeth. And uh, in this case, maybe maybe you're not so into Santa, the Santa story, uh, whatever. You have Santa beat you up when you're a kid. I don't know. It's a free country. Well, Elizabeth here is rolling out an alternative. I'm Elizabeth from Minneapolis. Our family's kind of stuck because my husband's from Germany. And they don't, Santa Claus, they don't have Santa Claus in Germany. In Germany, um, baby Jesus brings presents. And I mean, my husband and I are both devout Catholics, and I don't mean to be offensive, but, like, seriously, Jesus? <laughs> Savior of the world, yes. Bringing my kid ice skates? No. So a friend of mine said she was having issues with her kids just getting inundated with presents. She said, well, rather than having the presents come from Santa Claus, um, she thought, well, the three wise men are who brought Jesus presents for his birthday. You know, we're celebrating his birthday. They can bring the presents. And I thought, well, that's a nice approach. And the kids each get three presents, and that way they always get the same number. <laughs> Santa Claus will bring the kids next door presents. The three wise men are bringing them to our house. I think so far we're doing okay. So that's Elizabeth working to propagate a new alternative to Santa, the three wise men bringing gifts. And it also limits very handily the number of gifts your children can receive, keeps it to three, one from each wise man. Uh, but that is just the tip of the iceberg, just the beginning, because Sandon Totten is here now, and he's spent the last couple of days looking into Santa alternatives around the globe. Hey, yeah, Sandon? almost as many as there are turkey alternatives. I'm sure there are alternatives to Santa out there. 
Um, and I actually I spoke to a guy, Ethan Trex, who is a writer for MentalFloss.com, and he wrote a blog post that covered. Ethan Trex comes to my house on Christmas Eve. That's amazing. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that anybody. Wow, else you're was. lucky. He seems like a nice guy. Right. He wrote this great blog post covering all these different characters that oh. um, other cultures use, or uh, with, or instead of Santa Claus. Hmm. Um, one of uh, one of the more interesting, and I think uh, probably the one we'll start with here, is a character they use in the Netherlands in Holland, who's called Zwarte Piet. Zwarte Piet, he's a Dutch character. In the Netherlands, they don't have Santa. They have a, a very similar character named Sinterklaas, who lives in Spain and arrives via steamship. He has this sort of mischievous scamp who travels with him named Zwarte Piet, which translates into roughly Black Piet. And it is depicted generally as a guy in black face and bright red lipstick and an Afro wig and gold jewelry. And it dates back, I, I, I believe, well into 19th century or maybe even earlier. So it's, a, it's sort of a, a relic of, of its time, obviously, but it's not something that's, that's been erased at all as things become more politically correct. So you've got a guy in blackface, and this is obviously offensive and dated. What's the context in which, in the Netherlands at least, they still drag this guy out? Well, I mean, he's like a big deal. He comes out every uh, Christmas season, and, you know, there's there's more of him than there is uh, Sinterklaas. You see, like, sometimes there's five or six of them, like, parading through the streets, giving kids candy. And I was just, I mean, like you, it was kind of a horrifying thought, you know? You, you couldn't do that in our country without, you know, serious uh, trouble on your hands. So the answer is basically... Anything still goes in the Netherlands? They well, don't care? Well, it's more that. The character means something, you know, and to find out what exactly this character meant and why it was so important that they were willing to, you know, do this despite concerns people might have. I found a guy, uh, his name's John O'Haines, and he actually just moved to the Netherlands about a year ago from Australia. And for the first time this year, he actually played Zwarte Piet in a celebration. Yeah, I got to play uh, Zwarte Piet. You get dressed up as... Um a black man, you put on black paint, and uh, you get to hand sweets out to the children. Now, a lot of people hear about this guy in blackface who, you know, is kind of like Santa's elf. He does this bidding, and, you know, me included, we get a little uneasy, especially uh, here, you know, in the U.S. What's your take mm. on it? How do you see this guy black? Yeah, I, um, I had the same uh, concerns when I was in Holland. I said to some people in Holland, I said, in, in the West, we find that... Um, you know, racist. They had heard of those comments before, but it's such a part of their tradition that they don't look at it as, as a racist thing. Like I have a friend from Burundi uh, in Africa mm-hmm. who is um, you know, black, black. He enjoys Swata Pete just as much as all of the other people in Holland. So, But yeah, coming from the outside in, it does look very strange, I have to say. But but then you got to be part of it from the inside as well. I mean, you got to dress up as this guy and see the kids. Did that change your uh, perspective on it at all? Yeah, it did. It did. Because you see how much they enjoy it. You, you do have reservations when you first hear about it, but seeing the way that they celebrate it, it's, it's a really nice event. Oh, okay. So in the Netherlands, Santa having a slave, it's cool because the kids love him. Well, they, 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 he's not a slave anymore. You know, he's just uh, Santa's buddy. And, and in fact, they've even kind of changed the story a bit to say that he's the one climbing in and out of the chimney so much. So maybe that's why he's black. But, you know, the truth is, I think they just like this guy. They don't go into it too much. All right. What else you got? Let's more more Santa alternative spin the globe. So Ethan uh, in his blog post found a huge, you know, theme of sort of anti Santa clauses, as he'd call them. You know, here we got Santa. He's a good guy. Generally pretty nice. But in other countries, um, you know, Santa's got like a, an evil friend who follows him around, kind of uh, wreaking havoc on kids who weren't that good this year. In Austria, they have Krampus, which is this big horned monster 
with all this fur and leather, animal hide face. Yeah, I've seen pictures. Thing, it is like really terrifying. Yeah, it's really, it's really something that you would think is not at all appropriate to show a four year old <laughs> or, or a twenty eight year old. Because I saw that and was like, man. <laughs> so, um, if you didn't deserve any presents from Santa, uh, the threat is that Krampus will come up and he'll not just not leave you any toys. He'll steal the toys you have, or he'll, <laughs> or he'll hit you with a birch rod, or he'll tie you in a sack and throw you in a river. There's a character in Eastern France called uh, Le Père Foutard who carries a whip or some sort of, I guess, corporal punishment rod. And while Santa's handing out toys to the good kids, he beats the bad ones. It makes the whole, you know, getting your name on a naughty list thing seem, you know, downright pleasant. Right. I mean, you know, I think uh, everybody here knows that the naughty list is sort of is sort of all talk, but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit more hardcore over over in Europe. So definitely the most surprising of the pack for its total strangeness was Tio de Nadal uh, or Caga Tio. So you got to explain this one. All right. Tio de Nadal, also known as Caga Tio, is a Catalan tradition. It's basically a hollowed out log that has a face painted on one end. Okay. A log with a face on it. Yes. And they set it out in their living room or wherever. And each night, they offer it little morsels of food, which I guess is fairly analogous to how we treat Santa Claus, uh, leaving cookies, Mm -hmm. and cover it with a blanket for the evening so it won't get cold uh, while it sleeps. But on Christmas or Christmas Eve is when things sort of start to get weird. Um, (laughs) It's either put in a fireplace or put near a fireplace. And family members order it to defecate, at which point uh, they sing songs to it and... Hit the log with sticks. Cagatio, cagaturo, dea biendes y pino, pino bols cagar, garotara ba. So I gather the pooping log is a girl. No, no, no. That is Megan Smith, actually. She's an au pair in Spain. And uh, she's um, singing a little song sort of about Cagatio. She's uh, taking care of some kids and they're celebrating it around this time. So what does the song mean that she's singing? Well, that means hoop log, hoop toro, which is sort of like fudge. It's a treat in Catalonia. Hoop hazelnuts and pine nuts. If you don't poop, I will hit you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what? They want him to poop treats for them. Okay, so th- this pooping log recently showed up at the house you're pairing for. Um, tell me about what the reaction's been for the kids. I mean, are they really excited? Are they? Oh my gosh, you would have thought that Santa Claus was sitting in the living room. The little girl, she's five. Uh-huh. She twirled around with this massive grin on her face, squealing, and the three-year-old boy was just sort of astounded. This is just a log with a face painted on it, right? Yeah, it is. It is literally a log with a face and a little plaid blanket over it. It's- <laughs> Hilarious. This is the magic of the holiday season. I mean, kids can get excited about, you know, all the smallest things. Yeah. So, um, you know, not to spoil any secrets here, but how does a log poop treats? Well, they sing the song to him. And then in our family, the kids have to run and get a stick wet before they hit Tio. Okay. A wet stick? Yes, a wet stick. So while they're running to get their stick wet, they, the parents put the presents underneath the log. Oh, so they're beating him with a stick, and the wetness is just a distraction to uh, yes. send them out of the room so the parents can hide mm-hmm. poop gifts. <laughs> yes. Well, it certainly is uh, different, uh, but, you know, set up next to our own emerging 
say, Mr. Hanky, the Christmas poo <laughs> tradition here in the States, uh, maybe it's not that odd, huh? Well, that's kind of what Ethan uh, decided to after going through all these traditions. It sort of gave him a fresh eye, I guess, on um, some of the things that we do here in the U.S. Nothing from any other country is any more absurd at any fundamental level than, well, there's this guy with flying deer who lives on the North Pole. It, so I guess that's one of the fun things about Christmas is that a lot of the traditions are sort of fundamentally weird, and there are things that you wouldn't do at any other time of the year, and that's sort of what makes it special, right? Oh, well, you know, that, that's like that's just like Linus walking on from the side of the stage and just like summing it up and helping us all feel the true meaning of the season. Right, from cultural racism to pooping logs. It just kind of makes you feel warm and fuzzy. Well, Sandon, thanks for looking into all that. No problem, Jeff. And I tell you what, Sandon, I... Uh, cut against the best advice of economists and psychologists and others, and I bought you something. What? For, uh, for do you celebrate Christmas or do you celebrate uh, poop log or what? I, I celebrate Swedish Christmas with oh, okay. my family. Well, uh, here you go. Open wow, it it's a gift. Mm-hmm. Jeff, is it a raise? I can't do that for you. Whoa. Check what is it? Out. I have no idea. Well, it's called a stylophone. Open it up. It's a, it's a musical instrument that I guess was made like in the 60s and they're making replicas of them now. It looks like the Palm Pilot of musical instruments. Yeah, and uh, I, I saw it in uh, Think Geek and I thought of you. This is awesome. Well, yeah, I will have so, to try to write a little song or something for our show next week. Yeah, we're try it out. We got sound capabilities here. So turn the power switch on. There you go. And you touch that stylus. All right, as Sandon plays us to our final segment here, apparently, he's too thoroughly distracted to say goodbye to you, but um, we're going to bring back one piece of music. This is from just about a year ago, the last Story Slam that we were able to have, which the Story Slams typically include a little bit of thematic music. What, are you going to stop? Oh. Let's keep going. <laughs> That's nice. I, right. Uh, and uh, somebody piped up on our Facebook page the other day, Doug, I think his name was, and said, hey, since you guys are talking about giving gifts and all that stuff, uh, why don't you uh, play that song again from the Story Slam that was sort of about that? So here you go. This is this is me singing, of course, playing guitar, and uh, my buddies the Smarts are with me here. Thanks. And uh, so we'll let this song wrap things up. Small Christmas, I call it. This year, Christmas is gonna be small. Ain't got the money to go to the mall. Hit January walking tall. Every year I start with the same ambition Tried to spend less, start a new tradition Tone it down anyway, that's my vision But every year I fall Gotta chill out so you can totally do this Stick to my guns, you know I can get through this Try not to think about the other times that you blew this All the years I tried Hey, don't you know it's not about how much you spend I set the rules, but every year I have to bend Oh, how does that not as bad as I should I know I need to cut back I do But what will my wife think when I don't come through And just what kind of husband would I be If I don't love her at least as much as she loves me Found my mom the perfect gift outside my budget just a bit If I close my eyes and charge it I can budget Make it fancy the look that you have She gets to open it but now I'm headed down the wrong path but don't you think that the economy needs it? Commercialism grabs it through your wallet and bleeds it. Oh, the country needs me to spend. 
you make a good point as a matter of fact Hey, ain't y'all the folks that should be holding me back Ain't you people like you have got the country on track Hey, well that's, that's just not very nice I could give my dough to those out there who need my help I'd feel so good about myself and I could say to you I make good on my promise to scale back But let's be honest now that Christmas is upon us Can you follow through? This year Christmas is gonna be small Ain't got the money to go to the mall I hate January walking tall Yes, every year I start with the same ambition Try to spend less, start a new tradition Tone it down anyway, that's my vision But every, every year I fall It only takes a little discipline, I know I am a so weak, so meek beneath the storefronts glow Rather than waiting and deliberating, there's never debating I'm a sucker for the opening and anticipating I set my limit, but I never stay within I can't stop, I ease up, no cojones to begin it It's a war against tradition, and someday I'm gonna win it But for now, I just can't scale back All right, thank you very much. The Smarts, backing me up there. Thanks, guys. Sandin Totten produces the show along with me here. I'm Jeff Horwich. Anna Weggle did a great amount of work for us tracking down the people with their holiday gift-giving ideas. And um, the next couple of weeks, we're not sure exactly what we're going to do. Maybe some kind of special episodes uh, as we navigate our days off during the holiday. But anyway, we're not going anywhere uh, long term. We'll be back. And everybody have a wonderful holiday season.